Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I want to begin by announcing that this is our 50th episode of the show, and all of us here at Lead from the Heart headquarters are quite proud of reaching that milestone, not to mention especially grateful to you for encouraging us to keep this thing going. Our audience now extends to 140 countries around the world, and that's even though no one apparently from Cuba has tuned in so far. And as this is also our final episode of the season, I really wanted to soften the blow by bringing you a truly exceptional guest for our finale. And since I'm recording this introduction minutes after concluding my interview with Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry, I already know I've succeeded. It was over a year ago that I saw Frances give a TED Talk on the topic of trust. Her presentation has since been viewed nearly four and a half million times. And it's not just because her topic is so important, it's also because of the brilliance with which she presents it. As Frances says, trust is the foundation for everything we do. And of course, we all know trust is the cornerstone for successful leadership as well. What Francis has done is to bring profound clarity to our understanding around what behaviors can be consistently counted on to establish, sustain, and even rebuild trust. And all boiled down, what she's discovered is there are only really three key components of trust. And this podcast is going to be a deep dive into all of them. And it's wonderful. One reason it took me so long to get Frances to join me here is because she has been working on a book ever since I reached out. And that book is called Unleashed, The Unapologetic Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You, is not only complete, it's going to be published this week. And with that as an introduction, I am really honored to welcome you to the podcast, Frances Fry. Thank you so much. Well, I don't know if you you know this, but I've actually been trying to get you on the podcast for quite some time. I saw your TED Talk and was so impressed. And trust is such a huge component of leadership, at least it should be, that I was very anxious to get you on. And we had you scheduled and then something happened and we had you scheduled and something happened. And then you decided to write your book. And so I think it's been a year. So I just want you you to know as we get started that I've never pursued a guest as hard (laughs) as I've pursued getting you on here. So anyway, welcome to the podcast. So my apologies for that former version of myself. Oh, no worries. But it's interesting. You have a new version of yourself here. So I'm excited that that person is showing up today. So (laughs) as I mentioned, you gave this widely viewed TED Talk. And when I looked at it a year ago, it had like, I don't know, three and a half million people had seen this. So people are very interested in this topic. And then, of course, your new book, which I've read, obviously, dives into the whole issue of trust. It's one of the cornerstones of the book. And so I'm always interested in my guest background. Like, how did you get here? And in looking at your biography, you were like entrenched in mathematics and engineering and information science. So you're sort of leaning on the quant side. So I want to start off by asking, why trust? How did this interest develop inside of you? And what's made you do the TED Talk and the book? I mean, this is obviously a big focus for you now. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I started with the math and the science, as you said, and got increasingly applied through my education. So when I got my PhD, it was on operations and information management. And the way you can think about that is that I was really interested in the operations of how things worked. And I was really obsessed with getting things to work better. At some point when I was at Harvard, I started to realize that if it weren't for the pesky people, all of these operations would work great. <laughs> and so I got pretty obsessed with the people. And that was both employees and customers initially, because I was very, very interested in service organizations. And the thing about service organizations is that customers are often take on roles of employees. That's where my focus with people came from. And then, of course, how people, if they're being led. So I got very interested in helping organizations and people improve. And then I got invited into helping organizations where trust had broken down. Mm. And so I got to learn how to, if it could be rebuilt and how to rebuild it. That's kind of fascinating, actually, when you think about it. People are messy, and I think that's what you saw. But it's also the the interference with operational success sometimes is how people are being managed and led. And so this is going to be a fascinating conversation. So thanks for connecting the dots for me. Trust is going to be the theme of this conversation, even though your book has other elements that I would love to get to. I just think this is such a critical time for trust. It just strikes me as being one where, to use your word, Francis, trust seems to be wobbling in a lot of different ways. And you look into the world and we'll start off with government and we have an audience all over the world. And so there's no point in mentioning any one nation. It seems that government leaders often speak on truths and most of the time we let them get away with it, which confuses me. Love to hear you comment on that. And then in America, and this truthfully, these are companies that operate outside of the United States, but Wells Fargo Bank and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, Volkswagen, these are companies that, you know, like were malicious. They were intentionally trying to earn money and take advantage of their customers. And obviously that destroyed a whole lot of trust. And so they did a lot of harm in our society. And obviously these have been brought to light, but a lot of times they haven't been or won't be. So my big question to start things off is, how do we say that trust is essential to successful relationships of all kinds when we have so many examples where we seem to just blatantly disregard it? Well, I think you answer your own question because every <laughs> one of the examples you gave where it's disregarded, it got worse. Once you break trust, I mean, we know how to rebuild it, but it's not that there are no consequences to it. So I think each example you gave was not thriving when it came to light that they broke trust. So I actually think it's a bad strategy to do things that are like bad or you're taking advantage of someone or illegal. I think it's a bad strategy because it's the wrong thing to do. And also it's not going to last very long. We are just too good with investigative reporting. We are just too good at finding things out. I think you can start a stopwatch on bad behavior and someone will uncover it. Wells Fargo, that fraud, specifically the cross-selling of accounts where customers weren't aware of it, easily went on for well over a decade. 
So obviously it came to light and it's proved to be a very, very harmful thing to that organization in terms of their reputation, in terms of their ability to lend, in terms of their ability to be profitable and attract new customers. So they're clearly paying a price. But, you know, you could get seduced into thinking that what you just said isn't true because the CEO of that company was making a fortune and the stock was doing great and they had this reputation of being extraordinary in cross-selling and so everybody was admiring them. In fact, Stumpf was the CEO at the time and I had had a conversation with the CEO of Gallup, Jim Clifton, and just at the end of the conversation, just threw it out. I go, like, who's the CEO in America that you admire the most? And he said, oh, you know, Wells Fargo's CEO, John Stumpf. And of course, things have unraveled since then. He's no longer in that role. But it went on for a really long time. So do you think sometimes people are thinking, hey, you know, I'll pay the price when I pay the price? I wouldn't recommend it as a strategy because I think Wells Fargo has been in business for over a hundred years, maybe well over a hundred years. And some people did some secretive things that they swept under the rug for 10 years, which sounds like a long time, but out of a hundred years, like that's many decades. And they took a good swing at permanently damaging a company that was otherwise pretty great for over 10 decades. So I think that makes my point. (laughs) This is, going to be fun, which is it's not a lasting strategy. Now, could it last the length of a single employee as a CEO? Yeah, depending on how good you are at covering things up. And I don't know this. I only know what's read in the paper. I don't know the specifics at Wells Fargo or at VW or Purdue. But to me, these are examples that we were able to service it. And I look at the damage to the company and it is hard to say it was worth it in retrospect. Super hard to say it was worth it. Well, I'm here to not challenge you. I'm here to learn from you and to understand. I need, obviously, a little bit of encouragement from you that we really do demand trustworthiness because not only will that make me feel better about society, but it's it's really the foundation for where we're going to be going in this conversation, or at least where I'd like to. It's like if we have to establish that being trustworthy and earning trust and sustaining trust is meaningful. It's the most important thing. I'll go ahead and say it's the most important thing, but here might be the difference that we're thinking about it is that the book is written towards anyone who wants to build more trust. The book isn't written to people who want to get away with things. Yeah, obviously, yeah. But isn't it interesting, though, that there are these major companies where the CEOs were willing to take that risk? You know, so somebody is the steward of a company, as you said. Wells Fargo is actually, I think, goes back to the 1850s or 60s, the gold rush days. So it's, you know, 15 times 10. And so now you have a CEO who's willing to put that at risk. Purdue Pharmaceuticals obviously was a successful company and then got into, you know, selling drugs that became highly addictive to people and did lots of harm. And Volkswagen obviously manipulated their data to make sure that, you know, they could get away with polluting cars and still sell them. So all three were viable, you know, long-term companies and the CEOs themselves chose to allow this. Give me one last piece of insight from there and we'll move on. I would say that this is a testament for having, and maybe this is where we really want to do, is to have really great boards, not boards that have friends of the CEO, but boards that are really there on the behalf of others so that this can't happen. Because you can imagine a friendly board will permit things for longer. 
Um, so, so maybe the lesson is the CEO should not have much of a role of selecting board members, although I see very often that CEOs play a large role mm-hmm. in selecting board members. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's a very good point, but I also think you're right that because they want to have people supporting them, then the board doesn't really dig too deep into this. I mean, you know, we won't go into this much longer. The Wells Fargo reputation was that their cross-sell ratio meaning the number of products and services that an average customer had was somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to nine in a industry where the average was two and a half. Wow. And so that number alone should have been glaring. You know, it's like, well, how are you guys doing this when nobody yep. else even comes close? You know, so so nobody was really looking very hard at that. So, but you're right. Ideally, that'll happen. So thank you. I just really wanted to establish that because it's been on my mind. But I also think as we're going to be talking about your ideas on trust, that we have to establish that trust is important. So you you made that point very well. The, The most important thing. Yeah, the most important thing. But it's also a limitation of me and a limitation of mine and Anne's work is that we can help people who want help. We're not great at helping people who don't want help. That just other people are good at push. We're better at pull. This is an interview with you and your work. But I will tell you that somebody just wrote a review of my own book, which is called Lead from the Heart. And the person wrote very cleverly that were leaders to read this, they would be profoundly changed by it. However, the people that need to read a book called Lead from the Heart <laughs> would never pick it up. And, and I thought, yeah, you know, you're actually right. So, yeah, I mean, as we were talking offline, your book has already looked like uh, there's a lot of interest in it. So that's a very encouraging thing. So let's get into trust. Great. and. Your book is just coming out right now as we post this podcast, so I don't imagine too many people outside of your inner circle have read it, Or, and I'm hoping that some people maybe have seen your TED Talk, but let's just assume nobody's read your book and nobody's seen your TED Talk. Okay. And you say that we attain trust with people and we accomplish it with three different things. So let me just set the stage for the audience so that they understand. Number one, when others perceive us to be authentic. Number two, when people sense that we have rigor in our logic that we use to form our opinions and make our decisions. So we're not just willy-nilly. And three, when others feel we're empathetic towards them personally. And we're going to talk about all of these in a second here. And you say that when we have all three of these with people, we tend to earn greater trust. So tell us how you arrived at these three. Before we dig into them, how did you land on them? Yeah, and in studying trust, so we talked about how I got to study it. In studying it, we started to see what the patterns were, and we were searching for the fourth and the fifth. It just never came up as a reason. So every case, and we've now done this with more than a hundred thousand individuals, and not that many organizations, but you know, more than a thousand organizations. Did what specifically? Looked at what the obstacles were to trust and overcome them. And we just haven't needed a fourth. So that was the one is that we sort of did it from the ground up. I would also say that we got confidence in it when we were settling in on these three. And then we were simultaneously reading stuff from ancient times, and we saw that logos, pathos, and ethos, when Aristotle was talking about persuasion, also had these three. And so it made us 
feel like there might be some completeness to the three, but we're still open to the fourth if it's needed. It just hasn't been needed. Just to speak to that, when I saw your TED Talk and you went through the three, I wasn't begging for a fourth. I, I think, <laughs> I honestly, I felt, wow, that is, a, and that's why I'm asking the question because, yeah. and I'd like to know your methodology sure. when you talk about all these different people. Tell us what your research was. How did you go about identifying this besides, you know, looking at other literature? Yeah, and we did a lot of hands-on. So uh, for individuals, it would be, we would start with what are recent times when you didn't engender as much trust as you wanted. And then we would explore those and find out what was getting in the way. And we could always trace it to one of these three. So that was the N of 100,000 of doing it with individuals. We did it with individuals first. And then we started to see that it, the same thing. We were like, well, what's different for companies? And it turns out nothing. There's not like a secret fourth one for companies. So if any of the details of any of those companies, I could tell you where the trust broke down. I'm more familiar with other companies. But the same thing works for companies. And I think the big aha was that if you try to move trust as a monolithic thing, it's like impossible to do it. And it's because it has three component parts, each of which has different prescriptions to overcome it. So the way you overcome an empathy wobble, as we call it, an empathy challenge, is very different than the way you overcome an authenticity challenge. So if you tried, oh, this is what I did to build trust over here, let me try the same thing here, it's unlikely to work. Because overcoming empathy is different than overcoming logic, than overcoming authenticity. So I think that was the great unleash when we realized that trust actually has three component parts. And when we use those component parts and we started focusing on the prescriptions, we have not found a situation where we can't fix with the big caveat that you were making in the beginning. We can only help people who want to be helped. Well said. So number one on your list is when others perceive us to be authentic. So let's dig into that. I call this your tripod of trust building. And we'll start with authenticity. What does it mean to be authentic? Yeah, so in this one, it's that if I pretend I'm someone I'm not, you are likely to sniff out that I'm pretending in like 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Some studies have been done that you can do it with the volume on, you can do it with the volume off. Like we give all kinds of tells when we're not being authentic. So if we're trying to be someone we're not, the first thing to go is trust. Well, think about all the times it's tempting to not be ourselves. Like your manager has a message that they would like you to deliver to your people and you disagree with the message. And they say, do it for the team. So you go and say something that you don't believe. You're on the one hand being a good soldier. On the other hand, you have just sacrificed trust with that team. And that's just one example of when we're tempted to say things that are inauthentic. Another one that I find tragic is that let's say that I'm different than most of the people in a room, or let me use a more specific thing. Somebody arrives at HBS and they're going to go teach as an HBS faculty member and they go in and they teach as they think an HBS faculty member should teach. That is, they don't teach authentically from themselves. They try to fit in. It's a disaster because people don't trust them because they don't believe it's the real them. But when people teach from within themselves, you at least have the authenticity part. Now, you still need logic and empathy, but you at least have the authenticity part. So it's the real me. And again, in 2020, we can root out someone who's being inauthentic super quickly. So 
I'm going to assume that that's a real scenario, your second example, yes. that somebody would actually come to Harvard with all the education and talent and uniqueness to qualify to be a professor at Harvard. What's the disconnect? How could you succeed that well and then trip over a hurdle like inauthenticity? Like, I got to oh, you know, so be easy. Mr. Chips here or whatever. Yeah, no, no, it's so easy to do it anywhere because, you know, you'll have heard, so the business school, it's known for its teaching and there's lore of teaching. You know, you'll have heard in the old days, people cross country skied uphill both ways to get there. Like, you know, there's just this myth of how to do this and who has done it. And you go in and you own the room and you, you know, like all of these myths that work great for people that are just like those people. But it's terrible advice for people that are different than that. So it's super tempting to believe that the myth is true because people didn't say, oh, this is the contingent view. (laughs) You know, that's not what was like informally said. You just keep celebrating the same larger than life people. And then a person who is smaller than larger than life comes in who maybe doesn't speak as loudly, has a softer way about them but they try to pretend that they're this other thing. It's like, I think, quite natural to, in fact, quite studious. What worked for others, let me try it for me. When instead, you should be interested in what worked for many different others to say, oh, there's lots of different paths for success. Now I should find my own path for success. I love that, Francis. That's really, really wonderful. Thank you. Go back to your first example. So I work for you. You've just given me a decision that I absolutely don't agree with. I go back to my team and I hedge. I go, well, you know, this is what she wants to do or, you know, I'm not sure I'm on board or whatever way I undermine you in the way that I communicate this. How would you advise me to do this? Yeah. So you've just sacrificed your ability to lead in the future because the mistake you made is you threw your boss under the bus. So if you disagree, one way to say it is, oh, well, I don't agree, but we have to do it anyway. But you've just abdicated your ability to lead in that way. What you need to do is get yourself in a position where reasonable people can disagree about the right thing to do. So it can't be this is what stupid people think and I'm not stupid. It has to be, I understand the context well enough to see that reasonable people could disagree on the right thing to do, and here is what we've decided. So usually what it means is you have to go and spend more time with your boss to understand the complexity of the decision. But if you have a two-dimensional caricature of the decision and throw them under the bus, what's going to be sacrificed, you'll think, well, I'm saving my dignity, but you're sacrificing people's, nobody's going to want you to lead them after that. And not to forget that your boss has lost trust in you and your ability to deliver, right? Yeah. So you've kind of blown it on all aspects. Very good. But, you're, but it's very common. It's a very common technique. But if you are throwing someone under the bus at any point in time, your effectiveness has just gone down pretty dramatically. There's a element of being so secure in yourself that you could deliver news like that. Like if I'm afraid of being disliked or disrespected by communicating a decision that I'm unhappy about. I'm going to telegraph that to people like, you know, it's not me, it's her. And that undermines, obviously, the relationship where they're looking at you saying, hey, you didn't deliver this the way that is really, truly authentic. But I think the underlying reason for that sometimes is because people just 
they don't know how to stand up for themselves. They don't know how to stand up for their beliefs. They don't know how to stand up and give conviction. And is that what motivates an inauthentic leader? I guess that's the question I'm asking. Well, I think in the way that you describe the inauthentic leader, so I hear a message and I disagree with it, but I don't do the work to understand how it could possibly be a reasonable decision. I just think it's a dopey decision. And I then go tell people, here's the dopey decision that others made. You know, you're signaling so many things. You're lazy because you didn't do the work to find out. It's very unlikely that it was dumb people making dumb decisions. So you're just signaling all kinds of less than stellar things about yourself. The place where I want you to stand up for yourself is with your boss. Like, I want you to go and say, look, I'm going to go talk to the team, but I can't tell the team something I don't believe in. So we got to stay in this room and you have to help me understand how this can be a good decision. I understand how this other thing can be a good decision. We got to get to how I understand that this could also be a good decision or, you know, I won't be able to credibly give the message. That's fantastic. That's, I mean, that's really, really fantastic advice. And I, I'm trying to get granular here because you're giving these beautiful examples, but I think they're not just beautiful examples, they're real. I mean, they're like, people can relate to them. It's like, well, okay, so what do I do? So I really want to get that out of you. And before we move on, I actually would like for you to speak to the audience and say, here's why you need to trust in yourself and show people your most authentic self. Yeah, so I think that a, a couple of reasons. One is that if I have a team, and I'm a very competitive person, so I apologize that this is going to come out hyper-competitive, but if I want to outperform other teams, the best way I can do it is to gather as much people with as many different skills as possible and get the outer envelope of all of those skills, like get the outer reaches of all of those skills. So the only way I can do that is if one, if I get people that have different skills, and two, I permit them to be authentic in their skills. So the worst thing I could do is get people with different skills and then ask them all to behave the same way. So I want to outperform everyone else. So I have to let people show up authentically, but I also want to have enough difference so I can thump everyone who tends to get higher people that are just like them. If you have people that are just like you, authenticity is not a very big deal. Well, you're really talking about diversity, too, and getting comfortable leading people who are very unlike you, which is another one of these hurdles. How do you get people to get there? And being led by people who are very unlike you, yes. How do you get there? Yeah, so, and I do think authenticity, the reason that I bring it up with diversity is that if we see who has authenticity wobbles, it's usually people that are different than the strong central tendency. That is, if you're with people that are just like you, you're going to be authentic. They're going to be authentic. It's just going to feel supernatural. You can even practice the golden rule. You know, treat others as you want to be treated is awesome. As long as everyone is just like you. But as soon as people are different, that's when authenticity gets to be harder. Because when I'm unlike my boss, it's a risk to be myself. And so I need people to set the conditions to make sure that it's safe for me to do this. You're really saying have the courage to be this because you're going to be far more effective, not just in terms of establishing trust, but just more effective as a leader. Yeah. I mean, and here's the tragedy I see in organizations. So I'm different. And so I try to fit in. And maybe somebody gave me the advice. You know what? You're a little different, but here's how to fit in here. So if I'm different and I try to fit in, People are going to doubt my authenticity because none of us are good at fitting in. Everyone else is, that already is is better than us trying and pretending. So people are going to doubt my – they're not going to trust me, which means they're not going to give me stretch assignments. 
which means I'm not going to get promoted at the same rate of my peers and so on and so on. And then I'm going to be super duper like sad about the demographic tendencies of the senior team. And a lot of it can be traced down to I brought in people who were different and I tried to get them to fit in as opposed to to celebrate their difference and use every nook and cranny of their difference to win. I mean, we've all worked in organizations where that kind of authenticity and the courage to display it is repressed. You know, this is the way we do things here. He's not going to like that. You know, uh, I've worked for that yeah. guy a long time. And, you know, I don't encourage you to do that. Yeah. How do you maneuver? Well, here's what I think. I want to compete against that team because I'll stump them. Because, oh my, right. right? I mean, like, you are putting yourself at a severe yes. competitive disadvantage. And, wow, am I going to be able to beat you not even that hard? I totally think like that myself, by the way. You know, you just take a look, you know, you, you see the weakness and just realize that, you know, this kind of information you're sharing is is really powerful when you apply it because it adds a dimension to how a team operates that really helps transcend what everybody else is doing. And it comes down to our creating the conditions for people to feel safe to bring up their authentic selves and then injecting the courage in people to bring their authentic selves. So one last question on this. What do you do if you don't have that? So you don't have a psychologically safe environment. You have a boss that really isn't all that keen on diversity and uniqueness and authenticity. It's kind of like my way. This is the way we kind of do it here, kind of fit in. Do you think you can still be successful with somebody like that? Well, I, what I would say is I'll do it in my sphere of influence. Mm. So whatever my team is, I'm going to make sure I celebrate difference. We're going to outperform. And hopefully there's some degree of a meritocracy that somebody comes and knocks on the door and says, geez, how are you outperforming everyone else? And I can tell them. But let's say that there's no meritocracy. This is how they like to do it. And they don't perform very well, but there are no consequences. Then I think you have to make a decision. Like you have one time on the planet. And is this really the way you want to spend it? I love that as we move on here, I just love the idea of doing it within your own sphere of influence. It's like, don't wait to be led in the way that you're describing oh, gosh, here, no. right? Yeah. You know, take it on, do it yourself, have influence with your team and be much more satisfied. So you're very smart, Francis. I'm totally loving this. You're bringing out the best in me. I appreciate that. Even though you're still mad at me, but I hope to overcome that by the end of this. Oh, no, no. I've learned to be a forgiving person and I've learned well, to be I... a patient person and okay. because here you are, right? You, it, it worked out. So yes, it did. And I'm thrilled. Then you've got your book done so you feel better. And so this is all very good. So Thank you. Let's talk about rigorous logic. You say that we lose trust in others when we form opinions or make decisions without a rigorous and logical process. And man, have I worked for people like that. <laughs> Seriously, you know, Dunning-Kruger personified. And so I don't think you're going to have a struggle with this question, but give us an example or a couple of examples of experiences that you've had where people are making decisions where they're almost indefensible, not because they're they're wrong, but because there was no effort put into making them. So the first part is that if I doubt your logic, I'm not going to trust you no matter how authentic you are, right? So these are not like one can't substitute for the other. You need, turns out, all three, but the third one being empathy. So the, the question I ask is, so why am I doubting your logic? And there can be two reasons. One, it can be because I have really bad logic and I'm communicating that perfectly, right? So, right. Yeah. And, so, and thus you should doubt it. So that's a substance problem. But there's also a style problem, which is I have actually very good logic, but in the way I communicate it, it's lost. 
that's a style problem. So it's important to diagnose in any instance, is it a substance problem or a style problem? Because they have, again, two very different prescriptions to overcome. So if you have a style problem, you have good logic, but it's being lost in translation. We have ways, and we call it flipping the triangle, but the way in which you communicate, you should not take us on a journey because you'll lose us along the way, but you should start with your point. It will just help many, many things, and we can go on to that deeper if you want. But if you have a substance problem, which I think what you are alluding to, which is, I don't have good logic, what the prescription is just as straightforward, which is, we shouldn't take decisions about things that are beyond what we know. It's going to sound straightforward. You know, it's like, don't talk confidently about things you don't know. If you want to talk confidently about bigger things, you first have to learn about them. So the way I often draw this in the classroom is I draw a square and I say, this is what you know. And then I draw a circle within the square and I was like, that's everything you're allowed to talk about. And that's everything you're allowed to make decisions about. I then draw a circle outside of the square. I was like, you are not allowed to talk about that because if you do, you'll lose trust. So if you can think of all the instances you had in your head when you were saying that, we really can tell when people are out over their skis, when they're talking about things they don't know well. And we're horrified when people are making decisions on things that they clearly don't know well. That's a logic substance problem. And what they should be doing is they shouldn't be the ones making those decisions and they should be learning as quickly as possible so that the size of their square gets bigger and bigger. A brilliant illustration, by the way. So simple, so straightforward and clear. So how do I get better? I want to talk about the communication, what you call style here in a second, but staying on the substance issue and ignoring that people veer into the circle. How do I get better at making sure that people see that what I'm doing in my square is rigorous and thoughtful and complete. Yeah. So you have to give enough transparency. It's not full transparency, but enough transparency that so that it isn't faith-based, but it's evidence-based. So you have to be able to withstand follow-up questions. So if you get tense on follow-up questions or you're insulted by the nature of follow-up questions or you're the, trust me, because I'm in charge, trust me, that's going to cost you trust. When you say trust me to someone, they will immediately not trust you. (laughs) It's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. So, okay. Because you can't demand it. You have to earn it. So I think this is a blended question here, but blended, not the question, but blended in terms of substance and style. So once you have arrived at a decision and you're communicating it, and I want to get into the directness of what you mentioned a minute ago about you know, laying it out right up front and then explaining the details of it afterwards and not hedging or beating around the bush. But what I'm interested in here is how do you convey that you did the work? Yeah. So I think you know where I'm going. Yeah, and I know exactly where you're going. And so here's how I shouldn't do it. Tell you about all the work I did and give you all the context and then this and that and then I thought this and then finally get to the point. And the way I visualize that is with an upside down triangle, a triangle with the point at the bottom. And that's not a good way to communicate because you could lose all of us along the way. So even if you gave all of the details, by the time you got to the point, every one of us had abandoned you. So instead, you should flip the triangle and start with the point and either start with your point or start with a roadmap of your point. I'm going to make three points that show why we should do this. And then I'm going to give us two why we shouldn't. And my ultimate conclusion is going to be that we should. 
and then I go and give it to you. You're not going to lose anyone along the way. So what I would say is that if you want to get credit for the work you've done, start with the point or the roadmap of the point and then do it. Now, that taking people on a journey is like such a beautiful way to communicate. It's like storytelling. It's magnificent, but it's not good for people who have logic wobbles. Okay. So I'm speaking to a group of 100 people and I'm about to lay off 50 of them. Oh, yes. Please don't take us on a journey. Please don't. No, no. But do I say I'm going to take you through you know, our process here and explain why we've had to make this decision? But before I do, I need to inform you that we're going to have to let go or lay off half of our personnel at the end of this month. Now, let me explain. Is anybody listen to me beyond that? No, no, no. But here's what I might do. The right idea, and I think if you did, you know, the purpose of the first edit is to get to the second draft and then the third draft. So I might <laughs> start by saying, I want to begin these remarks with an apology. I'm sorry. I have failed half of you. The reason I know I have failed half of you is because our organization can't go forward with the employee base that we have. And I'm going to give you some of the reasons why, but what I want you to keep in your mind is that we are letting go otherwise good people. We will do everything we can to help you land in a place, but I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to overcome this. Are people listening to you now or are they in their own emotions? And am I one of the people? I believe they're riveted because nobody apologizes. I absolutely agree with you. I just wanted to give you one of the more difficult kinds of scenarios so that people can see that it's tested. Please. This is so fun. That's like the most difficult, but it's like when things go wrong, that's when I should make it about me. And when things go well, I should make it about you. And you're saying it should never be about you. Except for in this instance, if I'm the CEO and I have to let go of some people, in some ways I have failed. I don't think it's I failed so much I have to lose my job, but I sure have failed enough that I shouldn't get a bonus. And I should learn a lot from either how to do forecasting or how to do cross-training of employees so that they can have a more flexible workforce or withstand growth at all costs because there might be a downturn later. Like there's a lot of signals of what I could have done as a leader differently. And I'm going to wring out every ounce of learning of those and take as much responsibility as I dare for it. So what if I'm responsible for a product or a product line and I have decided that of products A, B, and C, that C is not performing and that I'm going to recommend that we stop it. We're just not going to sell this anymore. We're not going to produce it anymore. But C was a product that my boss created. So I'm going in telling my boss, we're getting rid of C and I know you created it. So I go in and I say, boss, I've done the analysis. And before I take you through it, I need to let you know that I've done rigorous thinking on this. And at the end of the day, product C, we just can't continue it. Now, if I've got a boss who's looking at me like you're going to kill my project, you're going to kill my product that I invented, and he comes at you, did that backfire? Well, I think the way in which you did it might backfire. I think what you can do is say, look, I have looked at this every single way. I mean, I have tortured myself in looking at it from every angle. And all of the scenarios I run show us that continuing with C doesn't make sense. I would love to walk you through this because I know how important it is, but I am stumped. 
every bit of my analysis shows me that it's not the right thing. Can we look at this together? So I'm really wanting the audience and, and listeners to put themselves in that scenario and know that you're giving the bad news right up front. You did some eloquent repositioning of this, but at the end of the day, you're still recommending that you're killing a product that your boss created. Oh, and yeah. You, can, you know, and you can expect that he or she's going to have a reaction, right? And so you don't want to be eaten alive before you've had your chance, but you're saying you still need to get it out. Yeah. And you want to get to the point where reasonable people can disagree, right? If you can get to the point where I've done all of this analysis and the boss of yesterday thought that smart people realize we should do project three, dumb people think we shouldn't do project C. And you're going in there and you're going to say, (laughs) shouldn't do project C. You got to bring to your boss that this is a reasonable way to think about it. And so you better be super rigorous. And that's like the dignity you owe is to have not looked at it superficially, but really looked at it in depth. So let's talk about your communication strategy around this now. So you're going out to your team and you're communicating and you're saying you need to apply the same standards in terms of style. So what limits people in doing that? I think that we, particularly for bad news, we like to just fill in a lot of context. And so we're like, we like to take people on a journey. It starts, it makes us start a feeling emotionally better. We might even get, you know, a couple of laugh lines in there. Like we're doing it for ourselves and our own comfort. We're not thinking about the listener and thinking about what their needs are at the present moment. So when we think that leadership is about making other people better, we're not making other people better. Our communication style is more selfish. What does that mean? Like I'm taking you on a journey and waiting to get to the bad news because it's more comfortable for me as a speaker. Is it though? At some point, it's going to be uncomfortable no matter when you present it, right? So we're seduced into thinking that if I tell a story and get a few jokes in there and win people over. And then tell them that they're laid off. I think that's yeah, not the way to exactly. do it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to end up resenting you more, right? <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it reminds me of a story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Three people walked into a bar. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. All right, let's talk about empathy, because this is the one, I love the word wobble, by the way, that you created, and you believe that most of us wobble on this requirement. If we wobble at all, we're in terms of trust, that we're more likely to be wobbling on this. And so tell us what you mean by empathy in this context, and really why it's so hard for leaders to display it. Yeah, and so empathy is, like, when I'm in your presence, do you get the sense that it's about me or about you? That's empathy. If when I'm in your presence, I'm like super present to your needs and super present to your context, you're going to experience my empathy. But when I'm in your presence, if I'm having everything be about me, you'll experience a lack of empathy. I'll give you a perfect example of when we show the presence and absence of empathy. You're in a room pre-COVID, but honestly, you could even do this on Zoom today. But let's say you're in a physical room with one another. And some people are looking down at their phone. They have sent a very clear message to everyone else in the room that their needs are more important than the people that are physically in front of them. Everyone in the room is going to doubt their empathy. They have just, just destroyed trust. And almost no words can make up for it. When you are demonstrating interest in me, and that translates into empathy, what is the internal reaction and it may sound a little bit clumsy, really what I'm asking is what happens to people when they feel you're being empathetic? Oh my gosh. 
depending on the organization, they feel like it's water on a desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's when you start to like stand up straighter and chin up and then you start to like believe that what's possible is possible and you start to try to become a better version of yourself. Like the miracle grow you mentioned or a miracle grow comes out. Physiologically what's happening inside of people. So there's been research on the physiology that I don't, I only understand it well enough to know really cool things. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay, we don't want the bad things. We just want the cool things. Yeah. <laughs> what are those? Are you going to tell me or? Oh, well, no, I just think that like, so some people have done studies that show physiologically what happens and it's, I don't know if like dopamine or whatever, but when we feel seen, it's like the greatest gift you can give someone. And it sparks all kinds of physiological things. Say the opposite. I'm there, you're talking, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, and I'm looking at my phone. Like, what does that do to you physiologically? <laughs> like, it just makes you feel sad, unworthy, all of those things. Well, just the opposite happens when I'm listening to you, I'm attentive, I'm asking follow-up questions that are curious to get deeper understanding. Like, the difference is, I guess, shoulders slouching in and shoulders sitting back and, you know, feeling like I can go and take on the world. And I try really hard not to ring the plug bell when a guest is using language and insight that completely validates what this whole podcast is about. But what you just did is to validate the yin and yang of really leadership, right? In terms of how you make people feel. And one makes people feel that they don't matter, that they're not important, that you've got more important things. The other one says, you, not only do you matter, but I'm all ears. I'm listening to you. I'm caring about you. And that has this, whether, you know, it's positive chemicals that are emitted into the system or what have you, it's creating a transformational feeling inside of people where they want to give back to you in ways that you can't engender any other way. Do you yes. agree? I, it was said way more beautifully than I can. Oh, finally. Okay, good. Because <laughs> you've done a really, really good job so, so far. So it's good to get a point on the board here. <laughs> Empathy <laughs> is honestly, I know this is sort of very few people listening in to your point about reading a book that teaches trust when you're really not motivated. If you're not all that interested in empathy, this isn't going to make much sense. But it is sort of seen still as being a soft approach to people, demonstrating that you are empathetic about what's going on in someone's life, regardless of what that is, has been sort of a a line in the sand that we've been unwilling to cross because it gets into the word you used earlier, the pesky people component, mm. you know, right? They're messy and I don't really want to deal with that. So I'm just underscore why empathy is just so critically important in leadership. Well, I'd say that if people doubt your empathy, they're not going to trust you. And that's going to make every single other thing you do harder. Like if people trust you, you get the benefit of the doubt for so many things. Mm. And when people don't trust you, they're going to constantly re-legislate what you said. They're going to make you repeat. They're just going to put in friction all the time. So your life will be better if people trust you. There is no path to trust that doesn't go through empathy. So you gave me a hint in your answer here earlier before we actually started recording here, but we're in the midst of this COVID pandemic and 
Right now, 65% of people in America and probably a fairly standard percentage across the world are working from their homes suddenly. And they're working with bosses who, many respects, have never had, let's just say, their entire team working remotely and still trying to get them to be productive. But you believe that this is influencing us to be more empathetic, this whole situation? And then the other side of this question is, why is it so important right now? Yeah, so I'll say that the, I'll answer the second one first. Why it's so important is that regardless of how somebody appears, so I'm right now, I get to see your picture. I don't get to see you live, but I get to see your picture and your beautiful suit and your yellow tie. And like, you look like you've got it all going on. <laughs> I have, you do. But I honestly, given where we are today, there is a high probability that somebody near you is suffering a lot. Every one of us is like one degree of separation from having life really complicate things. So for today, you know, for why now, I think that the empathy and the being present to others and being compassionate about others. And again, I don't want to lower the standards when I do this, but oh my gosh, like we need to be present to the needs of others and Almost everyone is going to have needs that if we see them, they will perform better. So that's the second one. The first one is I get that it sounds like it's a soft thing, but I'm a hyper competitive person. I like to help really good people win. And if you build trust and you make people feel seen and safe, they will outperform the competitors by orders of magnitude. And so I like to thump and thumping requires the people. Like when a number of companies that say people are our most important asset, I believe it. I actually really believe it. And I think that most organizations, you know, we have like two or three times more potential we can pull out of people if we do the right things through leadership. And that's what we've tried to communicate in this book is that in a really pragmatic and practical way. I'm going to parse this out. You believe that people are the most important thing in an organization. You don't necessarily believe when organizations say that people are the most important asset that they mean it. Thank right? you. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because there'll be some cynics going, wait a minute. You know, yeah, no, I started we've all two seen sentences. these platitudes. And, yeah. yeah. No, okay. yeah. I started two sentences. Yeah. So many falsely claim it. I sincerely believe it. So why do we wobble on this more than authenticity and in, in our communications? Yeah, well, we wobble on this more than authenticity because typically authenticity wobbles are for the underrepresented. So by definition, there's just fewer of them. But every time I go into a room, I like get the distribution of how many people have the different wobbles. And authenticity is always the smallest because if you're in the majority, your authenticity is unlikely to wobble. And then it's a race between logic and empathy, right? Some rooms, logic is the dominant one, but most rooms, empathy, it's empathy. So it's usually empathy, number one, logic, number two. And I think maybe for the reasons that you've indicated that we have underappreciated the importance of empathy. Good news, it's actually very easy to overcome and to fix it, but we've just probably not seen it as being important enough. Do you think that it's going to be, in other words, our hearts opening? Are we going to be more empathetic? Are we going to, as leaders collectively, see that this is a critical element of leadership post-COVID? 
Is there any risk that we'll go back to not having that concern? Well, if I were any area where I was leading, I would double down on this as a horrible time with a beautiful consequence, which is the world is now sanded for empathy to be a superpower, and I would really take advantage of it. Love that. Is there a circle and square-like <laughs> test that I can do? So how do I know where my wobbles are? How does our audience know? Yeah. You just described this like this seems like a simple test. Is there? Can I do it with you right now? Sure. Okay. So the only way this is going to work is if you take a recent example where you were trying to build trust and you failed. So doesn't matter if it was home, family, work, community, but you need a recent example where you were trying to build trust and it didn't work. Okay. So I need to put that in your mind's eye. So do you have that? All right. I do. Okay. I'm going to give you three choices. You're skeptic, and that's who I'm going to say, and it was either one or many people, but you're skeptic. So the reason they didn't trust you because they doubted it was the real you. Or is it because they doubted your logic? The real you, but it just didn't seem like a good idea. Or did they think it was just too much about you? Like they doubted that you were genuinely in it for them. Which of the three was it? Three. It was the last one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've just, so that we've just diagnosed it for you. I find it that quick for everyone. And so now the only thing we have left is, is it accurate? So what I would ask you to do is go and describe this to someone who knows you and loves you. And they will tell you if you're one of the eight out of 10 people that has an accurate self-diagnosis or one of the two out of 10 people that has an inaccurate self-diagnosis. And if you ask people who know you and love you and there's a difference, who gets the tiebreaker? They do. They do. Okay. Yes. I'm always amazed when you present anything like that. I've been given this feedback and I'm trying to determine whether or not it's right or not. And they're like, it's right. <laughs> you know, it's like no question. Yes. So my scenario was a little bit difficult because the person was asking for a whole lot from me. And so at some point I just like couldn't do it. But I, I know I didn't do a good enough job of just saying you're asking too much from me, you know. Yeah. And so it became he's not demonstrating. He's just not on the train anymore. And that lost empathy with him. But you just took me through the exercise that everybody else can do. So. Thank you. That was very, very cool. A deep pleasure. And then we have prescriptions for whichever one it is. We have prescriptions. A lot of them, now that you're figuring out, there's like triangles and squares and circles. And yeah. Now won't surprise you. There's a two by two. But we are pretty pragmatic about how to overcome it. And here's what I'd say to people. If you do this exercise and the book doesn't give you the answer, I'm on LinkedIn now, which is a miracle, my first social media, message me. Tell me the situation. I won't rest until you have a solution. That's very generous of you. Thank you. That's very cool. I hope people take advantage of that. It's always fun to connect that way. So thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Francis, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition that we call the Heartbeat Round to give us a little more personal insight into just people just really want to know a little bit more about you as a person is really what this boils down to. And so we ask, you know, about a dozen questions, but these are quick answers, you know, first thing that comes to your mind and answer them in a heartbeat, hence the name. So are you game for playing? Oh, super fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So thank you. Here we go. Number one, one book that profoundly shaped who you'd go on to become. Letters to Those Who Dare to Teach, Paolo Freire. Quality you most admire in other people. Audacity. 
quality you least admire in other people. Mm. Cruelty. With the idea of trust influencing your choice, the one company on the planet you hold in the highest regard. Microsoft. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all. Oh, positive reinforcement. I just love that. Thank you. (laughs) Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. Harvard Business Review, or if I'm being honest, the New York Post. Really? Well, Harvard Business Review, I never do, but I'm from New York. Oh, I didn't know that. Everybody from New York, whether we admit it or not, we read the New York Post. Okay. I grew up in New York. Where are you from? Long Island. What part? Shoreham, a little town. Oh, okay. How about you? Garden City. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So do you read the New York Post? No, but I, I can honestly say I don't. But I live in California now, so it's really yeah, not that. Yeah, you've been you in know. California too long. I, the, I, but I love the headlines, yeah. uh, you know, the front page. No, that's, so. that's what I mean. You read the headlines. Yeah. People pretend to read the New York Times in New York and read the Post and the Daily News, so I get it. <laughs> <laughs> One major workplace change you're certain will happen globally post-COVID. Huh. Um, a willingness to challenge assumptions. Cultural value every organization should have. Uh, cherish differences. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. When you make it about the leader. One piece of advice you'd give parents today, since you're a mom, yeah. to prepare their children for success in their adult lives. Let them experience your high standards while they experience your deep devotion. Wow. Your synonym for the word heart. Devotion. One lesson you wish you'd learn much earlier in life. Mm. Meaningful change must happen quickly. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Marry up. (laughs) This is like Downton Abbey here. So, um, very, very good. Listen, that was really wonderful. That was so fun. Thank you very much. I have one final question for you, but thank you very, very much for this. This is great. I want to, before we go here, really just turn the stage over to you. So we have been really focused on trust, and your book is more than that. And so I want to just open up the opportunity for you to say goodbye to our audience. But in the process of doing that, leave us with any last piece of insight, whether it's trust-related, empathy-related, communication-related, authenticity-related, or something that we didn't get into with your book that you really want to make sure gets addressed here. I would love that. Oh, thank you for that opportunity. So I would say that being a leader is a choice. You can be a manager and not a leader. Like a manager means you have to fill out evaluations of people. But if you want to lead, leadership is about making other people better making other people better as a result of our presence and lasting into our absence. So if you want to step up and lead, there are three things you need to do in your presence and two things you need to do in their absence. The first thing we have to do in our presence is build trust. So if you want to lead, the foundation is trust. Don't bother with anything else until you can build trust with other people. And then there are some other tools that are super helpful for when you're in the room. And then the better you get at leading, the more people you'll be leading, the less likely you are to be in the room with them at any given time. There's a couple tools that will help you lead even when you're absent. And if you're looking for like, who's the best world-class role model right now? Go ahead and look at the CEO of Microsoft. I think that he is doing an amazing job and we studied him at the end. We didn't study him along the way, but Mark, it was like to your earlier point, it's like, oh my gosh, he's living everything we're writing about. Like it just was super validating. One thing you said here, just two things. Uh, thank you, uh, by the way. 
<laughs> leadership is about making people better. You know, I always believe if you read a book and you come away with one idea that you can take with you the rest of your life, leadership is about making people better. If people just understood that, they would shift their behaviors in just the most profound ways. So thank you for that. The other is we had Herminia Ibarra on. You've said, oh, you're, you said you're competitive, by the way. She has the most downloaded episode of our podcast. So you're going to have to rally some support here. Oh, I don't. I, I'm just going to go ahead and stand down. She's going to thump me. <laughs> but, uh, so, but, you know, we've dug into this and he is, Satya Nadella, is the embodiment of everything we're talking about. Indeed he is. So it energizes, you know, but there's a spiritual element to him that I think, you know, at some point I'm going to have the courage to really explore. Haven't told my audience yet, but this is the end of our season here. And, you know, I think when we come back for season four here that I'm probably going to dig into that a little bit because there's just an element of who he is as a human being that I think is so much of an element. Let me give you a tip on how to do it. Yeah. Which is Kathleen Hogan, Peggy Johnson, Amy Hood. Ooh. Critical leaders on a senior team wouldn't happen in their absence. And who are these three? They're CFO, chief people officer, head of business development. But there are three people on his senior team. So while I said Satya and everyone should, it's what you're going to immediately find out is it's his senior team and his senior team is magnificent. So if you started with those three women... And then you brought Satya in, I think then you're going to have figured it all out. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you so very much. I really love that. On behalf of my entire audience, Francis, this was worth the wait. So (laughs) honestly, you know, I mean, we had a lot of ups and downs here. And I was wondering if it was ever going to happen. And I'm just so thrilled it did because you are absolutely fantastic and we wish you our audience wishes you phenomenal success with your book i don't think you're going to need it but thank you so very much for doing this it was just a joy for me oh and and me as well mark i just can't thank you enough for your patience and your excellence and i really appreciate it well thank you so very much best to you stay safe and well okay bye Before we go, I really want to thank the people who have helped me produce this podcast, starting, of course, with my incredible guests. And I'm also especially grateful to the team of people who just have done so much for me. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Marjana Novkovic, and my all-star sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And I also invite you to reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Mark C. Crowley. And my website has a direct link to my email. If you have any feedback for us on the show, we would surely love to hear it. And I also want to leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. 